you will, open your Bibles once again to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. We want to continue uh, there this morning, beginning in verse 25. We'll read through uh, verse 37 in just a moment again. The Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 10, beginning in verse 25 momentarily. Uh, most people, if they spend uh, any amount of time with me, listen to my teaching or preaching, uh, find out fairly quickly that uh, uh, one of my mentors, heroes of the faith, is a, a pastor by the name of John MacArthur. And he is, uh, has often told the story of when he was in seminary. It came his time to uh, preach a sermon uh, in the seminary chapel. It was a, a big deal for the students, and the entire faculty uh, would hear uh, these sermons and actually uh, evaluate the the preacher and there was kind of a, 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 a paper given out that had different categories and they were to be given check marks or uh, uh, numerical values as to their appearance and to their voice and to their use of the text and all kinds of different things that you would use to evaluate a preacher and uh, his sermon. Uh, one of the men, one of the professors uh, was a man by the name of uh, Charles Feinstein, a noted biblical scholar, and uh, MacArthur had a very high regard, really desired that uh, this man would approve of him and respect him and think that he had great promise as a preacher. And so his text was Second uh, Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 13. Uh, those of you uh, that are familiar will recognize that as what is alluded to, referred to many times as the Davidic covenant, God's promise to this man David that he would have a descendant that would establish a kingdom and rule on a throne forever and ever and ever. And John MacArthur began to uh, expound upon that text and uh, began to speak of the, the great danger of presuming upon God as uh, David had desired to build the temple and Nathan had to tell him, you're not the one that's going to build that house but indeed, God is going to build an even greater house through you. And so MacArthur finished the sermon, and uh, he was leaving the chapel service, and uh, the professors were kind of lined up and had uh, their papers to hand to him and uh, appointments for him to come in and discuss uh, the preaching, and uh, he would see what kind of grade uh, they gave him. And he got to uh, uh, Feinstein's uh, place there in the line, and the, the uh, paper had been just folded into a very small little package. And he handed it to MacArthur, and he hurried off and, you know, unfolding it. And the only thing on that paper was written in big red letters. You missed the point of the passage. And MacArthur was just brokenhearted that, uh, you know, that, that this, this man that he wanted a, an affirming word from had nothing good to say except you missed the point. As he went into his office and discussed it later, he said, How dare you take a text that is a, a key, a linchpin, a foundation to what God is going to do in the world and, and what He did in the world in the sending of His Son, this greater descendant of David, and you veer off and talk about presuming upon God. You indeed missed the point. And I would suggest to you that as we look at this most familiar of parables to be found in the Bible, 
far too often Sunday school material and preachers and commentators speak eloquently through the text. But I fear they entirely miss the point. So let's look this morning, begin our reading in verse 25 of Luke 10, and again, look at this very familiar parable and answer the question that I identify as the most important question ever asked. Verse 25, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among the robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, and when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds and pouring oil and wine. Then he sat him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave, him, gave them to the innkeeper saying, Take care of him and whatever more you need, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. It is truth. It is inspired. It is infallible. It is inerrant. It is the imperishable seed of the new birth. It is that which is given to be sufficient for that which you would do in this world. Namely, the converting of the soul and again, the conforming of the life of the believer to the character and to the will and to the person of our Savior, Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you indeed would work powerfully in us and among us on this day. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last time we looked at the uh, immediately preceding verses and Jesus was praising the Heavenly Father. He was rejoicing at what God was doing, that God's plan was unfolding in the person and in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And He even celebrated, giving thanks to the Heavenly Father, that the things that Jesus Christ was doing and saying in the world, that these things, their meaning, their application, was actually being hidden from those he characterized as the wise and the understanding. And yet it was being revealed to those that did not fit into that category. It was being revealed to the humble of that society. And so we are go, go on and we find out, and it, it's almost uh, 
there as we get into our text, verse 25, Jesus has just spoken to this, this reality of this nature of the, the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the work of, of evangelism, the building of His church. And in Somerville, we would say something like, and son of a gun, there comes an example to illustrate my point. And that's what we see here. And, and behold, what I have just said, there is a living example of those that are wise and intelligent, but yet what? They miss the point. And so we see here that Jesus very uh, graciously and genuinely interacts with this who was a part of those that were opposing Jesus, part of those that, that would desire to put him to death. And so uh, we, we see here that, that, that uh, maybe even in the same time frame, one described as a lawyer stands up to inquire of Jesus. And so we see what is the essential question. The most important question that anyone could ask as a pastor, and I hope that all of us, even as Christians, we should desire that multitudes of people would come up and say something to this effect. Could you, could you tell me how it is that I may know that I have eternal life? We, we find this question at least a couple of times uh, throughout uh, uh, the Scriptures. We find one that we often refer to as the rich young ruler. And if we see that question addressed to Jesus, what should we do? Pay very close attention to how he responds. It seems like maybe Nicodemus has the same kind of idea when Jesus begins to explain to him, now listen, Except you be born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, out of these examples, it's interesting, at least as far as what is recorded, Nicodemus is the only one to whom Jesus expressed the gospel. For God so loved the world. And goes on to explain to him how it is that one can be saved, converted, how he may be born again in, in a sense. Peter was asked this question on the day of Pentecost. Sirs, what must we do to be saved? Jesus, I mean, Peter gives them a very concise response. Repent and be baptized. You'll be saved, every one of you, for the remission of sins. The Apostle Paul and Silas were imprisoned, and we find a very uh, agitated and concerned jailer ready to kill himself. He asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And the answer is what? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And so, why do we get what, at least in my superficial reading, so many different answers to what seems to be the same question? Here Jesus is going to engage in what we would call personal evangelism, which we all should be involved in. And again, I know in the book that I recommended to everyone that would ever listen and given copies of it to many. The Gospel according to Jesus, John MacArthur makes the comment that Jesus would have failed every evangelism course and every seminary and every Bible college with which he was familiar. 
And yet, would we indict Jesus Christ for the way that He would reach out to those who need salvation? Or is it us that needs to have our practice and message of evangelism scrutinized by the Lord Jesus Christ Himself? And so, this lawyer inquires and asks this essential question. What, you, know, you hear me talk about this existential angst that it is the norm of the, of the human experience. I am concerned. I want to know, who am I? Where did I come from? Why am I here? And then the biggie. Where am I going? And even beyond that, again, is it going to be good or bad when I get there? These are crucial, crucial questions. Notice what Jesus does here. He replies to the question, and again, it's a, as, as I say to you many times, I love for you to ask me questions. It typically means you've been listening. And I like that. And I like, oh, okay, well, let me, let me see if I can explain a little more clearly what it was that I was trying to, to get at. Because so many times uh, in a sermon, you, you don't tie everything up in a real neat little bow for everybody. So, so that's a good thing. And so Jesus is going to respond to this man's question, and to be sure he is not evading answering the question, but in verse 26, he asked what I call a probing uh, reply. He asked him a question. He said to him, and this is what we call in evangelism an open-ended question or even a diagnostic question. Many of you remember uh, Bob Curley, my predecessor at Centercrest, and we didn't always agree. On, on a lot of things, uh, but uh, at the same time, there were a lot of things we did agree about. And it was very interesting. He, he was tremendous at going into people's homes and speaking to them and sharing with them the gospel. I, I can just, if so, those of you that know Brother Bob, I can just see him jingling his change in his pockets there, just kind of slouched. And ah, hmm, Tell me about your spiritual life. Ah, just tell me about your spiritual life. Well, then you began, well, they said, well, you know, I've always been a Christian. And, you know, my mom and daddy were Christians. And, and I've just always been that way. The wheels are turning. The wheels are turning. You've always been a Christian? There, there's, there's never been a point in your life where it, that you would think that you've passed from life unto death. There's, there's never been a, a time. And, and please understand, I know that there, I know there are people that's, that are saved that cannot take you to the place and, you know, show you the card. That, that I understand that. But again, in diagnosing, you're not always a Christian. There is a point in time which you, you who were dead were made alive in Christ Jesus. Now, you may not be able to define it really, really clearly, but you need to be able to understand, I have not always been a Christian. I was lost. I was dead. I was bound for hell. And just like Paul on that Damascus road, the risen Christ intercepted my life. And so Jesus is probing. He's, he's diagnosing. And, and so the man does answer answer the question. You know, Jesus, like, what's, what, what's your law say? Uh, how, how do you explain this uh, particular issue? And the, the, the lawyer replies. Look there at verse 27. Love God. Love your neighbor. 
And the truth is that that summarizes the law. We looked at a, the law and its value for all people in all places at all times and how uh, a culture whose laws are consistent with biblical law are designed for human beings to, to flourish and to do well in, in, in life. And so th- this man has, a, has, a, has a, a pretty good grasp. Now, what Jesus wanted to know, now again, is, okay, how does this relate to eternal life? And so he, he answers the question, and Jesus is dead on it. You got it. Whoa! Now go do it. Now go do it. You you are correct. I agree with you. We have reached a, a point of agreement that the Old Testament is binding. It's relevant. It's applicable to this situation. The law is good and it is holy. Hit it, buddy. Hit the bricks. Go live it out. And then we see what I call the evasive response. And I don't know if Jesus related this story and gave his insight as to why he did what he did to whom he did here. Uh, Luke wasn't there, okay? Uh, but, but we're told we're given some insight that wouldn't be normally available to us. But he, the lawyer, the one asking the question, desiring to justify himself. I call that a fatal mindset. That is, like the rich young ruler when asked about the law, his response was what? All these I have kept from my youth. Let me tell you something. I'm going to give you a little tip. It's for free today. I'm not charging you for this one, okay? Might want to take a pen out and write it down. It might, might work for you one day. When you stand before God, and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? Have you kept my law? And All these I've kept since my youth. Do not answer in that fashion. You will go straight to hell, directly to hell. You will not pass go and you will not collect $200. Okay? Wrong answer. Remember that. So, his motive was for Jesus to affirm that which he said. He wanted Jesus to agree with him. And so he asked what ultimately proves he didn't know it. It's not so much the question was loaded, but the reply sure as heck was loaded. Because he says, Jesus says to him, or he says back to Jesus in verse 29, and who is my neighbor? In other words, there, there was a bit of a debate. There in uh, uh, Palestine, among the, the rabbis and the scribes and the Pharisees and all of the, the experts in the law, again, uh, uh, you know, what, what is the most important commandment? We see them asking Jesus that, so forth and, and so on. And even again, then who is my neighbor? Knowing full well you're commanded to do what? Under old covenant law, to love your neighbor as yourself. Again, Jesus himself says, you're right. That's right. Love God, love your neighbor. That summarizes the Ten Commandments. First four laws, honor God. Second six, live rightly with your fellow human beings. Well, again now, seeking to justify himself. Well, who, who is 
my neighbor. Now, he didn't know probably that he was speaking to the man who in one of his first sermons had said, You have heard it said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor. But, I say to you, love your enemies too. In other words, even those that you find most detestable, most unlikable, most despicable, are included in this class of individuals called neighbors that we are required to love. That certainly wasn't what that man expected nor what he wanted to hear. Again, evidently it was popular within Judaism at that time. Yes, love God, love your neighbor, but hate your enemies was really not a part of the Old Testament law. It was man's man-centered attempt to knock the rough edges off of that law so it was more palatable, more doable. In other words, we might say we like and we are nice to the nice. In other words, yeah, we, we, are, we like to be nice to the nice. And, and so many times this parable that Jesus is about to unfold for this man is preached like some kind of spiritualized Aesop's fable, which it is not. It is designed to do what? To answer the initial question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? The parable says some things to us that are true, and they can't, they, those things can instruct us, but just as the parable of the goats and sheep doesn't really, is not an instruction manual on animal husbandry, uh, the parable of the great net is not a parable on how to fish. The pearl of great price is not a parable about how to get yourself involved in land speculation. The parable of the soils is not a parable about proper uh, agricultural practices. They are designed to make a point about the importance and the priority of salvation. That's what Jesus is all about here. And so, Jesus begins to communicate what I call the evocative illustration, a pro, or a provocative illustration. It was designed to evoke, to provoke. One of the things, and it seems like in the course of my ministry I've accomplished this. Most of you know I started out, uh, not by accident, we know there are no accidents in God's economy, but by the providence of God, I started out as someone kind of coerced into teaching a Sunday school lesson. Now, or teaching Sunday school class. And guess what happens when you have to stand before even a few people? You don't want to look foolish. You start studying. You start reading your Bible very seriously. And all of a sudden, God began to do dramatic things in my life. And so, I would typically say to people, all I'm trying to do is make you mad. Now, most people would say, amen, Tim, you, you do that fine. You do it in pulpit and out in the foyer and when I meet you in town, whatever. You, you're always ticking me off. What I'm saying is, I want you to think. I want to penetrate that, okay, 
I'm doing my church thing today. You know, Tim's doing his thing. Let's get out of here. Time, time to go. Time, time to get to the buffet. Methodists are going to beat us there. Let's go. No, I want to say something that God the Holy Spirit would take. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I want you to think. And so that's the point of this parable. It was designed to shock this lawyer out of his self-sufficiency, out of his complacency, out of his self-righteousness. And so Jesus begins to talk about a, a man that was going from Jerusalem to Jericho, a distance, I'm told, of 15 to 20 miles. And it's at, Jerusalem is actually about 3,000 feet in elevation, and Jericho is about 1,000 feet below sea level. So you've got a, a descent from altitude of about 4,000 feet over this 15 to 20 mile journey. And it is characterized by, by lots of rock outcroppings, and it goes through the wilderness, and there's a lot of nooks and crannies. It's, you know, some of you have you know, driven on these little narrow mountain roads, and it's, you, know, you say, well, we went around a curve and we met ourselves coming back, you know, because it's just so steep and winding and narrow. But it was very uh, useful to those that would hide in the wilderness and prey upon those that would travel. And they, they would uh, take their goods. They would rob them. And so as this man was traveling, we're told that he fell among robbers. And they did what robbers do. They stripped him, uh, probably inclusive of his clothing, but anything that he had with him, they beat him. They left him, as we might say, they left him for dead. They did their business. They carried out what they, 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 they were hiding there among the, the hiding places adjacent to the road. Uh, they, they did what they had gone there uh, to do. And so as the man lay there beaten and bruised and dying, Jesus says, now by chance. Now that's almost as bad as saying, well, I sure am lucky. Because now you know there's no such thing as luck. And Jesus, I believe, says it this way to get your attention. Do you think Jesus believes in chance? Do you think He believes in luck? No. He says it that way to get, whoa, wait a minute, now by chance, to catch your attention, to pull you into uh, this story. So, now by chance, man beaten half to death, left for dead, nothing there to, by which he could help himself, minister to himself. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road. Young lawyer, okay, okay. Thing's gonna have a happy, I was kind of worried there for a moment. This thing is going to have a, a happy ending. A priest is going to come along and he, he's going to love that neighbor and, and he's going to take care of him and we're all going to live happily ever after. And he saw him and he ignored him. He just simply kept on walking. Now, why is this an integral part of the story? Now, I would say what Jesus is using here is what, what in uh, uh, literature we call irony. That is, what you ex what, the outcome is different from what you expect. How many of you remember the short story from high school literature, The Ransom of Red Chief? Come on. 
Don't break my heart. Don't break my heart. The gift of the Magi. Okay, there we go. O. Henry, master of irony. Okay? Thank y'all. Y'all really, you saved me here today. So, what was the expectation? That gentle and kind and compassionate priest went and cared for that man. And Jesus says what? He ignored him. But the story continues in verse 32. A Levite comes by and the man, okay, all right. The, the priest didn't carry out his duty, but, but surely the Levite would. He might, probably not quite as concerned as the priest would be for not being ritually defiled. And, and so surely he, he will know that, 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 that and, and practice that, that God desires mercy more than sacrifice. He, 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 will, he will do what, what is right by uh, th- this man. He moves as far as he can over to the other side of the road. Ignores him. Passes him by. Wow. Well, the story doesn't end there. Verse 33. But, but, a Samaritan. Wow. Jesus is speaking in a Jewish context. Speaking to uh, a Jewish lawyer, rabbi, scholar, scribe, whatever particular have you want to nuance that. Jews, when they wanted to offend someone as they would want to offend Jesus, they called Jesus a Samaritan and you have a demon. It was a, they hated him. Now, my Wednesday night crowd, all three of you, <clears throat> my Wednesday night crowd, where did the Samaritans come from? What happened in 722 B.C.? The northern kingdom of Israel falls to Assyria. Those ten tribes are deported. They intermarry and, and they, they produce a mixed race of people known as the Samaritans. And they were forbidden from coming to the temple. They were hated. They were despised. You talk about racial injustice and racial oppression. That was it right there. They hated one another. They did not have a kind word to each other. The woman at the well, John 4, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan and you would stop and speak to me? I'm shocked. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he ministered to him. He provided that which he, he needed. He, he, he placed him, he, he, he took care of him and he put him on his probably a, a donkey or a mule and brought him to the inn after he had bound his wounds. We're, we're told that he treated them with oil and wine. In other words, whatever medicine was available to him. Probably even tore some of his own clothing to bind up uh, the gashes and, and the beating, the places where he had been beaten and cut. And when arriving at the inn, he continued to nurse him, to take care of him with, with no concern for himself. No, listen, I've got an appointment. I've got, I, I've got to be somewhere. I'm supposed to meet some buddies. I'm supposed to do this. No. He continued his compassionate care and then stays with him all night and he goes to the innkeeper and gives him enough money for him probably from what we can gather, maybe even to stay two months if that's what's necessary. 
In our language, he left a credit card open at the front desk. And whatever this guy needs until he's able to move on on his own, it's on my tab. I'm going to, I am, I am taking care of him. I'll, and, and you, if you have to spend some of your money, I will repay you. Verse 36. The earnest exhortation. Which of these three, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? These people that were considered lower than dogs. Seriously. And this good and pious Jew... I, don't, I, th- I think he choked on the word Samaritan, quite honestly. I don't, I don't believe he could get it out of his mouth. And so, who do you think fulfilled what you've said is the law that I've indicated you were correct about and answers the question about e- eternal life? And he says, well, he finally has to answer. He can't just stand there staring like a deer in the headlights. He's got to do something. He's got to get off the dime. The one who showed him mercy. So, again, the question, and he, and I, again, I believe this lawyer is ticked off to the T. He knows he's hooked. He knows that he's standing in the glare of the headlights. He knows that, that he is not going to get out of this without being pretty embarrassed. And so, the question, the answer, the obvious answer, that foul Samaritan. And then the imperative. You go, and I believe emphatically, you do as the Samaritan did. You want to know about loving your neighbor? That's the way you demonstrate love for your neighbor. That the neighbor, you want to define who the neighbor is? It is everybody that bears the image of Almighty God. No matter what the ethnic or racial divides may be thought to be, you're under obligation. Now here's the thing. The story ends there. Ellen and I were watching a television program the other night, and did 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 they get did the guys go to jail? Did they execute them? It just left it kind of, and you, you were left to infer. Yes, they figured out who did it, and they were going to arrest them, and the appropriate measures were going to take place. But what do we like as human beings? We like our stories to end, and they all lived happily ever after, and it's tied up in a nice, neat little bow. And evidently, at least from what we know from Scripture, Jesus left it at that. Now, remember Jesus is answering the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Is He teaching that you love, if you love God and love your neighbor, that you'll go to heaven? There's a real problem with that if we understand, if we come to the text and understand exactly what Jesus is doing. 
And please again remember this. Never stand before God and say, I have loved you supremely and I've loved my neighbor as myself because you're lying through your teeth. Okay? Your fundamental problem is you do not love God. If you go out into this culture and if you ask around, do you love God? Oh, yeah. I guarantee you, 90% would say, I love God. Now, there's two problems with that. Number one, they don't. And the God they say they love looks an awful lot like they do. Which is by definition what? An idol. It's a false God. Remember, everybody's got a God. Everybody's got a church. Everybody's got a law. Everybody's got a heaven. Everybody's got a salvation. Everybody's got a gospel. So what's Jesus doing? Just like in the case of the rich young ruler. That young man went away sad. We don't know. He's shoving him right up against the holiness and righteousness of God's holy law that he may see, may, that, that self-righteousness might be stripped away that he would see, oh my God, I not only do not love God, I do not love my neighbor. I cannot love my neighbor. I have not loved my neighbor. I need a Savior to save a sinner like myself. What have we said? The law precedes the gospel. I think it was Spurgeon. The law is the silver needle that draws the golden thread of the gospel. If you're not lost, you do not need a Savior. If you, if you think that you have one shred of righteousness that God would accept in, the, in place of your, uh, for your salvation, you are terribly deceived. And folks, let me tell you this. And this, Listen, we're cultivating this in churches left and right. If, you're, if your testimony is, I am saved because of something you did, by definition, you're lost. You hear me? If you're, if you're depending on something you did for your salvation, you're lost. Whether it's your baptism, your decision, you're walking an aisle, you're crying, whatever it is. And certainly if you're depending on that, I love my neighbor. Let me, let me just, let me, if I just said, if I could just, if, if Jesus would let me define my neighbors as those folks that just live on steeplechase drive. Oh, and let, let me just, only those that, you know, if I took the proverbial circle and maybe drew a 800-foot circle around my house. These are my neighbors. I look across the street. He needs his yard mode. He needs his car wash. He needs his gutters cleaned out. They need their house painted. The wife is sick. She needs a meal. And let me tell you something, you just keep going round and round and round and round and round. Now, when my car needs washing, I really don't even wash my own car, so I kind of get off the hook there. I can't even love my neighbor sufficiently that it would count as righteousness, even if I narrowed it down to the one neighbor that lives directly across the street from me. Even if I did something that was good, it would be so tainted by my own sinfulness that it would not meet the standard. You see, 
this man, he had the problem that Paul had to repent of. Turn in your Bibles to Philippians 2. I had this conversation with somebody recently here in the church, and it's, it's a common thing for me. We often think of repentance of Philippians 3. Again, me, me being silly now, okay? But, you know, I've got to repent of, of smoking and drinking and dancing and gambling and all that, that stuff. And I'm not for any of them, okay? But I'm just saying, you know, we usually go there. But most of us, we need to repent of the good things that we do. And that's what Paul discovered. That it was necessary, not only that he repent of what anybody might identify as a sin, he had to repent of that which he thought of was good enough to gain for him a right standing before God. Look at Philippians 3 verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Look out for anyone that would distort the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace, the gospel of salvation through grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Be careful about those people. For we are the circumcision who worship uh, by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. If there's anybody ever been a Jew of Jews, if anybody could stand smugly before any group and say, I have outperformed anybody as to zeal, excuse me, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. It was a time in his life that he thought, I love God and I love my neighbor. But, whatever I, I gain, I had counted or whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I counted it as scubula, as dung, as rubbish. I looked at all of those things that I once thought would gain for me a right standing before God, and I repented that I would have ever entertained for a single second that there was anything good in me, anything that I could do that would gain for me a right standing before God. That young lawyer, hey buddy, knock yourself out. Go love God and express it in perfect love for your neighbor. You finish painting this guy's house and you've got to go wash this guy's windows. You go, you, you go over here, you've got to mow this guy. I mean, the point is what? You exhaust yourself. You, re, you come to the point that you're broken and you go, wretched man that I am. Remember the Pharisee and the tax collector? I thank you, God, that I am not like other men. And that poor tax collector, what? Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus offered a scathing indictment of these Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. Sometimes we'll refer to it as the seven woes. Seven woes, you, you, die, you tie up burdens on men's back and you will not even lift a finger to help them uh, lift them. You go out and you proselyte and make one convert and you make them twice as much a son of hell as they were before. Woe to you Pharisees! 
your whitewashed tombs. That wasn't a real nice thing to say. Just so people always say, Tim, you, you say stuff that ain't nice. Let me tell you something. Check out Jesus and Paul. They say some things that ain't too nice. Why? I want you to pay attention. I want you to, I want you to get it. What's the point? By the works of the law, no man shall be justified. It is by the law all men are proven beyond a shadow of a doubt, beyond any shred of any evidence. I am guilty before God. And when I realize I am guilty before God, when that, if that lawyer would have said, Oh my gosh, Jesus, I have never loved God for an instant, and I have never loved my neighbor for an instant. What shall I do? I believe our Savior would have looked at him with love and being worn out by even the idea of seeking to obey God's law. Jesus would have looked at him and said, Come unto me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There is rest in the salvation that Jesus Christ answers. Do we indict Jesus? I, wait, well, wait a minute. He didn't tell him to pray a prayer. He didn't give him a card to fill out. Uh, he, 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 he didn't get him. He didn't, Jesus didn't even sign the guy's Bible. But he left him there. Why? The man was not prepared. He was not prepared. The law had not performed its function of breaking the hard heart to the place that all that heart can do is cry out begging for mercy for me. Not all of y'all. Let me tell you something. It's me. I'm the sinner. Be merciful. When I look at that law, I'm guilty. It would maybe be a bit of a elapsed for me, let me just say a, a brief word, as I've said. In a sense, the parable is not so much about loving your neighbor. It's not so much about racial reconciliation. But, it, but again, the parable is built on truth. And so it, it is there. And so again, it is the, the demonstration of love. And about, among the many things that I would say about where we are now, and I think everybody needs to own this. I see people, you know, that make this claim, I'm colorblind and I'm not... I believe prejudice and lack of love for your fellow image bearer is incipient. That is, every one of us, we are guilty of being lustful, greedy, angry, prejudiced. Every single one, without fail. Now, you may, you may not have any problem with people of color. It's just people that don't get out of your way at the supermarket or out of your way when you're driving down the road and whatever it is. But let me tell you what the law does. It removes all claims that I may stand before God and have any hope of salvation. It forces me. It forces me to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the instructor that takes me to the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's the point of the parable? What must I do to attain eternal life? I must understand that I am a guilty sinner before the law of Almighty God and I need a Savior and that Savior's name is Jesus Christ and He is my only, the only hope for that eternal life. Yeah? 
Jesus left him hanging. We don't know what happened to him. Maybe, maybe he did drive himself to despair trying to serve that neighbor. Hopefully he did. And he came to recognize what? I got to have a Savior. I got to have a Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your truth. It is true. It is powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword dividing the joints and the marrow. Lord, it is what you have said would be preached through which you would accomplish the new birth, that you would prompt faith, that you would cause even those that have been Christians and can in some sense say, I have walked with my Lord for years. As we think about the obligation of love of God and love of neighbor, we are still guilty before you. And we must thank you and praise you that you're the Savior who saves sinners such as I. May we, because we must, may we rejoice in the gospel of our Savior. Jesus Christ. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.